Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Artist, researcher, and writer Jonathan Bailey is out with a new book. It's called Rock Art, A Vision of a Vanishing Cultural Landscape. He says that uh, to those who once walked these fins of sandstone, the landscape was alive with meaning and metaphor in a fourth dimension, a collective vision of a landscape deeply connected to their culture, senses, and their landscape. In his book, he brings back layers of dimension to archaeological sites in Utah's and Arizona's canyon country by highlighting the significance of seeing beyond the second dimension, that which is carved on the rock face itself, to the value of place, landscape, and the fundamental experience of our prehistory. Jonathan Bailey says these visions of the past are quickly being destroyed by development, vandalism, illegal trail pioneering, and encroaching tourism. This anthology brings together essays by noted archaeologists, writers, and artists, including Lawrence Baca, Greg Child, Andrew Guilford, and uh, others, to illustrate what we have, what we've lost, and what we may lose. Tied together with the Bailey's essays and more than 150 color photographs from his explorations into some of these remote and wild landscapes. Uh, Jonathan Bailey, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you uh, being with us. I understand uh, since you were uh, a kid, you've been out in, in some of these places. You have walked over 30,000 miles of Utah landscape, you, you say. Yeah, 30,000 miles. 25 of that is here in the San Rafael Swell. And so you, you, uh, I think you were born and, and grew up in the sort of the uh, San Rafael Swell area. Yeah, I was born in Emory County. I've been here for six generations. Six generations, yeah. Yep. And and you write that this is the, the place where you live is the sort of place where after a rainstorm you'd go out in, in your yard and, and find ancient artifacts. Yeah, they, all sorts of stuff washes up. Every rainstorm you'll see corn cobs, occasionally pottery sherds. So it's definitely, they were using the same places. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, so I imagine a lot of people who'd live in that area, you'd have a sense of that history. It seems like from an early age, you had a special desire to, to get out into this uh, this country and experience the uh, connection with this this ancient history. I wonder to uh, illustrate that if you'd read uh, at least part of your introduction here, page one, then over okay. the, the, to the page break, page two. All right. You want me to start now? Uh, yes. Okay. I was born in the center fell between pillars of stone following a topographic map that my parents had given as a gift. Already it was frayed and turning to dust. I was six years old and be- eager to taste beyond the insincerities of marked trails and tourist des- destinations. I wanted something real. I knew there were wild places, or so I had been told, but I said, feared this, too, was a gimmick, something to bring the tourists and their paychecks. What was left of wilderness? I was afraid of asking this question, but I couldn't resist weaving my life in search of the answer. I was too young, as I had been told, to walk the distance I had asked for, but I persisted. This was my birthday gift. I would want nothing more than the truth. It was a February morning as we left. I was wrapped in a wool coat and a plaid blanket that my mother had woven me, woven for me for my birthday. I was glued to the back cab of my window and looking into the canyons that poured back into the earth after miles of meandering. I couldn't see any cities, roads, or sign of human occupation. My vision was unobscured. My map told me that the nearest object of human construction was Interstate 70, some 40-something miles to the south. I leaped out of the vehicle as we rolled to the stop at the Indian Trail, as my map titled it, a narrow and winding entrance into a perennial spring-fed stream and red rock tower that enclosed it. I, of course, had my eye on something else, an unmarked, untitled stain on the map indicating a place with no name, a canyon that hadn't been touched, at least not by surveyors. Before entering, I had to follow the Indian Trail into the main tributary first, with my canyon lie on the other side. The Indian Trail proved not to be much of a trail at all anymore. I had seen several de- desert bighorn sheep cascade across the ivory sandstone, plummeting down into the brilliant ochre red walls. This pathway was remarkably steep, too steep, in fact, for my gym shoes. I stumbled frequently, but eventually found myself next to the creek, flaked with sparks of amber. From here, we walked several miles west, regularly wading across the waterway. I was small and cold. The ice-laden water was chesty. Would you like to turn around? I was asked. No, I was responded. At the confluence of my canyon with the main tributary, a large pool had collected. Cobalt blue marked its depth. Five feet, ten, twenty, one couldn't know. Crawdads and suckerfish regularly tested the surface 
only to sink back into the darkness. Water cascaded into this pool from my canyon, fracturing its rhythmic face into four intermittent falls underlain by water a variety of neon striking mosses. We skirted along the cliff face on the west side, utilizing a small ledge that circumnavigated the pool. From here, the walls were pitted and convex, a blue-gray esophagus by which dried fern leaves clung to life on its upper reaches. On its upper floor, I spotted a brilliant piece of jasper, blood-red and woven with charcoal black vein. I held it lovingly in my palms as its contours suddenly began to take shape. It was the bottom half of a projectile point, the first I had ever personally found. I questioned who made it and when. At that time, the answer was as distant as the centuries between me and its maker. I placed it back in the sand and continued walking into the heart of the wilderness. How far had we walked from the vehicle? Five miles, ten? Distance didn't seem to matter anymore. I inspected every niche and cranny I was capable of for several miles until something irresistible came into full view. Completely repatinated cliff wall, mirroring layers of sandstone-tinted maroon to indigo. I jogged to its face, examining the pockets that were obscured from the canyon floor. The surface was neatly adorned with prehistoric carvings or... Indian writings, as we were taught to call them in Emory County. How many people had seen these, I wondered, just a creator and myself, or had someone else passed this way? It was getting late. If the sun didn't tell you that, the temperature certainly did. I suppose we turned back at this point, but my memory of it remained foggy at best. I don't recall ever turning around. I stayed, didn't I? I never left wilderness. I couldn't have. That's a Jonathan Bailey reading from his introduction to Rock Art, A Vision of a Vanishing Cultural Landscape. So, Jonathan Bailey, you're quite the six-year-old. Uh, I wondered if you'd articulate that. You, you, at six years old, you wanted something real. What, what was that? What was that? Wilderness? What was that? Well, we do live in a society where everything is constructed, and you know, we're really caught up in the memory of other people. We live on a house that someone else made. We ride on streets that someone else created. We're in a city that was entirely imagined. So what is real about our lives? And uh, you say there at the end of that passage that you um, you uh, you never left wilderness. And I, I guess that's that's probably true for you and, and uh, you know, a lot of people. Um, I want to get into the, the genesis of this book. You just the next passage. I wonder if you could have you uh, tell me about that. You you go back to this place, right? Is it the same place? But you yeah, went to 15 years way. later, you're in your 20s. Tell me about the, the next trip back. The next trip back, I visited the site, and it had been completely destroyed. There were many images had been chipped off. There was vandalism, ATV tracks on the canyon floor. It was completely dismantled. And uh, I think, the, well, the, you know, statistics bear it out, and you write in the book uh, and, and elsewhere, interviews that you've given that vandalism has increased, seems to be increasing, seems the rate seems to be increasing. Yeah, and there are field offices here in Utah that are reporting upwards of 1,400 cases of vandalism per year for that field office. So what uh, what sorts of things? People carve their names into the into the rock? What What are they doing? We've seen them carve their names in the rock. We've seen them spray paint it. We've seen them drive over it. We've seen them pull it off. We've seen them burn them. I mean, if you can imagine how to destroy it, it's probably been done at least once. Hmm. You also say that once uh, a site has been vandalized once, then that uh, the, the, it just increases in that site. I guess people figure, well, if it's been vandalized, I can do it too. I think it creates this illusion that it's more acceptable or that the law is more complicated, and so they can do it if someone else has. Hmm. Uh, you're right. Uh, this is page 90. You say the uh, the culture, the art, the landscape, it's all one. And you say development brings a sense sense of looting, uh, a looting of the spirit, landscape, and knowledge and past for monetary things. So development, uh, you could you could imagine on, you know, just it's common sense in, in one uh, one says development brings a sense of looting, but I, I think you're meaning that on several different levels. Well, I think that we are taught to think of these sites as objects and not really think about how they were put there. About the, I mean, I think we know what it was like when a mother dipped her newborn infant.
elephant's foot in pigment and placed it on a cliff wall. I mean, these are memories that we can tap into and appreciate and protect for future generations, but the we think of them as objects, as just relics, and we create this sort of perception that we need to um, treat them like they're museum objects. And so, you know, the landscape, as far as people, and especially development, is concerned, it's it's treated very much like it. The, the landscape around it doesn't matter, and the only thing that we should care about is the actual surface, which, you know, when we're going there, there is that memory of the, the cultural memory that is imbued into the landscape. Uh, and this is the fourth dimension you're talking about, right? In the book, there's a main theme that uh, that's, that we ought to consider this as a part of the landscape, and, and that's an important part of it. Right. I mean, it is a very important part of the art. It's often an indication of where it is and why they were there and the plants that they were using and the animals. I mean, it's all a part of that same thing that caused them to create on that surface or construct a structure there or whatever the site is. Do you? I wonder. I guess for each person, it's it's sort of an individual uh, thing that the way we experience the rock art and and the landscape. But uh, some of the writers in the in the book are indicating that they feel that for some people at least, it's it is sort of a, a quote unquote drive by experience, right? You go, you take the photograph, you you do it, you kind of collect it. This experience, right? And. Um... There are many people that collect them, and there's varying degrees of that. Some of it can be really detrimental. You know, once you start collecting, you get trading and location disclosure, and you have other people that just visit, they see it, they visit with respect, and they come home, and, you know, they're, you, you're never aware that they were there, and those are obviously much better visitation guidelines that they're following. What is the attitude, then, that you would advocate? Respect, reverence, awareness? I think all of those work. Mm-hmm. You know, that you you have to respect it. You have to treat it with reverence. I mean, I think the lack of reverence is what causes vandalism. Even if you're not the one vandaliz- vandalizing it, I think that attitude um, goes to other people. And I think that that all... Oh, contributes to its preservation, ultimately. I wondered, uh, maybe have you turn to page 33 in your, your book. Um, it's a spectacular photograph here. I think this gets to what you're talking about, this fourth dimension. Uh, this is a nighttime uh, photograph. To, to the left, comprising almost all of the, the left of the images, yeah. is, is the night sky, just spectacular. Uh, to the right, there there's rock art. Right. Uh, um uh, the, that's um, a Fremont panel. It's an interesting Fremont scene, obviously. Uh, tell me about that. What and what were you? What were you trying to to, to say with this this photograph? It's, what I got from it is you are situating it in its in its landscape. It's pretty spectacular. It's not just you're you're not you know fully focusing on the rock art itself. It's right. it, it's within the larger world. Well, the the interesting thing about that site is that. Unlike a lot of rock art sites, it's very, very hidden. And um, I visited that site at night specifically because you have this sort of sense of being closed in at night, and I think that that's um, really what the artist is going for when they placed it there. Hmm. Now, the the downside, the negative on this, uh, this idea of the fourth dimension, page 19, you've got a, in, in the distance you've got a, an oil rig. And uh, you you say the caption says the infrastructure induced by oil and gas development terrorizes the fourth dimension, robbing the fundamental experience of a cultural landscape, introducing a plague of vandalism due to increased access. So increased access, you know, let alone the development, increased access is a problem, you're saying. Right. I mean, when we oppose oil and gas leasing, it's not generally the oil and gas well that we're opposing. We're opposing the infrastructure to get the gas out. Because, you know, if you had to hike 20 miles to a place and now a lease has been approved and now you can get there 
in a mile or a half mile, then obviously you're going to see more problems from vandalism. You're going to see more visitation, more erosion, and all of the problems from over-visitation. Hmm. You talk about in the book, you you have a passage on uh, Nine Mile Canyon. We did a program recently. There's a book on Nine Mile Canyon, and, and you, you talk about this. Increased access has inevitably, you say, led to increased vandalism. Right. It's, it's access, visibility, and um, sometimes even difficulty. I've seen that a lot, too. If it's a challenge, they want to mark their place there. Oh, really? It's kind of a, a, a marker of, of uh, an accomplishment they've, they see, find they've made. Right. If it's hard to get to, if it's, um, if it's a, like a really hard climb or a very long hike, a lot of times you'll see signatures if it is at least somewhat known. So I'm sure we'll come back to this as well. What what what's the answer? Do you think it is is it a whole cultural shift? Um, you know, because you can't, you know, you can't obviously a, a few <laughs> park rangers can't police, you know, all this all this area. Right. I think that it's a it's a various things. I think that it does come from secrecy. I think it comes from um, education, and I think that. Also, I think land management has to play a role in understanding what cumulative impacts could be when they're um, looking at these undertakings that may be approved. You also say that um, we don't know what's out there, right? So it's, uh, the, no. the I mean, artifacts the are being state, discovered a lot. A lot of times we don't know what's out there. Well, in the state of Utah, we have 8% has been inventoried. So that means that every decision that is made... Everything that ever happens, that's being done with 92% that we have no idea about. So, I mean, that that is a huge concern, obviously. Uh, we're talking, if you just joined us, with Jonathan Bailey. Uh, his uh, book is an anthology. It's called Rock Art, A Vision of a Vanishing Cultural Landscape. It includes essays uh, by Mr. Bailey, also by Lawrence Baca, Greg Child, Andrew Guilford, uh, others. Um, and uh, includes uh, many, many uh, beautiful photographs of uh, some of these areas. Um, and, and before we go to break, uh, John Spaley, you, you, you included some beautiful uh, photographs of pristine rock art, but you also, I think this is on purpose, included some defaced rock art. Right. What, what are you saying there? I, I think that when, I mean, the, I think the main purpose of the book was to bring people to the table because... I have sat through meetings where nobody is there other than, of course, oil companies and um, private developers and energy lobbyists. No one else is there. No one is speaking up on behalf of these. Um, and uh, I think that part of that, part of instilling the urgency for action is to both show them that there is actually something to fight for. Not everything is destroyed, but these things can also be destroyed. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, situate this particular discussion in a, in the larger discussion um, about uh, the Public Lands Initiative and uh, and Bears Ears. Uh, I know, John Bailey, you you've written recently in the Deseret News uh, your your views on this. I want to have you articulate those views when we come back. More following the break. Did you know that while enrollments in foreign language classes are dropping on college campuses nationwide, the number of college students who are learning American Sign Language is going up? A report from the Modern Language Association shows aggregate foreign language enrollments decreased by 6.7% from 2009 to 2013 in the United States. But American Sign Language enrollments went up 19% over the same four years. Students may be drawn to sign language because it is visual and because it satisfies a foreign language requirement. They may also want to communicate with a friend or a family member who is deaf or hard of hearing. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Jonathan Bailey. He's an artist devoted, he says, to protecting cultural resources and the wild landscapes they inhabit. He's covered 30,000 miles of Utah's backcountry on foot, exploring the art and minds of the people that lived there hundreds to thousands of years ago. And he preserves the largest collection of photographs of San Rafael uh, Swell rock art in the world. It's one of the largest collections of Utah rock art photographs internationally. His award-winning work in both art and conversation has been featured throughout the world in well-known journals, books, newsletters, magazines, television shows. His book is Rock Art, A Vision of a Vanishing Cultural Landscape. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to uh, get your perspective on uh, on rock art in uh, Utah. Um, and uh, what do you think ought to be done to protect this? What's uh, what's your view on uh, um on the land, on the, these wild places, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495 is our toll-free number. You can join us also by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, Jonathan Bailey, uh, of course, you're very aware of uh, the debates going uh, ongoing about the uh, PLI and the Bears Ears uh, National Monument. Uh, what's your view, specifically is, is situating rock art uh, w- within that? Well, as as I've been saying, there's an immense amount of rock art and structures that has not been documented, has not been researched, has not been vandalized, and I think that it is really important that we uh, look at these very large landscapes before they are developed, before they are vandalized, and say, we need to protect these for future generations. We need to make sure that we mitigate impacts before they're happening. Mm. Uh, right. So, you know, if, if we may unwittingly destroy some, you know, a lot of rock art if we, we don't have an inventory of it of it yet. Um, you you said uh, something pretty uh, impactful. Let me just read this as it's it's a paragraph. Um, when it comes to treating native peoples and their ancestral lands with respect, some politicians and outdoor enthusiasts seem to have a double standard. Uh, when ISIS ravages the antiquities in the Middle East, it is a deplorable show of terrorism. When your neighbors, politicians, decision makers, even individuals you consider as friends and family are vandalizing, developing, or otherwise destroying antiquities and heritage of Native American peoples, it's declared as progress. That's a pretty stark comparison. Well, they, I mean, there is, there is a comparison there. that We don't uh, ever deal with uh, these antiquities like we do in other countries. I mean, every time something is destroyed in Egypt or over there with ISIS, they uh, it's, it's always so terrible, but it happens here every day, and there is very little being said about it. Mm-hmm. And you could, uh, yeah, I guess you could point out the, you know, the Taliban, when they famously blew up the, you know, the ancient uh, figures right. in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, you go on to say, Utah Congressman Rob Bishop is quoted as saying that Native American sites, specifically in reference to prehistoric paintings and carvings, are not antiquities. Um, and, and you say you were you were at the table originally on the PLI, but uh, but you uh, you're not on board now. Why why is that? Well, the, I worked with um, the Emory County end of the proposal. I dealt with the residents here. We talked it over with ranchers, we talked it over with energy companies, we talked it over with SITLA, we, we went through virtually every invested party that we could think of, and we found compromise that we could all live with, and we I hand-delivered it over to NDC, and by the time the draft of the PLI was released, every acre that we had asked to be preserved was transformed into an energy zone almost as if it was spite or something. So, uh, yeah, as you write, the, 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 where it's ended up, to be allies, it bears no resemblance to what you viewed going in, I guess. That's been at least no. your experience. I uh, mean, I, I don't think there is any compromise there. Hmm. I think that, I mean, I think it plays very heavily on the lack of information about land designation and what it means, and I think that they are using that to propel its significance through rural communities. But um, I don't think anyone is on board if they actually knew what was in the bill 
And I don't think that it provides any protection hmm. for anything, really. We had a, a big discussion uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago uh, about Bears Ears PLI, and uh, one of our responders, um, it, by and large, vast majority of our, our listeners, at least who responded, are in favor of Bears Ears and uh, opposing PLI. We had a few people who were pushing back. This was one of those. Um, this responded, I just want to get your, because this has specifically to do with, with rock art and, and artifacts. I want to have your response to this. So this person uh, juxtaposed two statistics, and they gave uh, some uh, supporting evidence for these stats. First, 25 cases in San Juan County from 2011 to 2016, uh, this year, um, of uh, looting, vandalism, disturbance of human remains in San Juan County versus 1,400 cases last year alone in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. This person is saying that uh, <clears throat> there's some indication that, uh, you know, you create a monument, that's not going to protect these artifacts. Well, there is some credence to that, but something I don't think people realize is that when you designate these large pieces of land, how they work ultimately is dependent on its secrecy. And by that, I mean that, so, if they designate the Bears Ears National Monument, I can guarantee you the top 20 sites will see heavily van- will be heavily vandalized. They'll probably be heavily visited. However, that's an exchange for 100,000 other sites. You have to realize that um, as we have this uh, discussion, there is this uh, other element that... Uh, if you look at any map of any designation that has been made and you look at actually where you've been, you realize there's actually a whole lot of other stuff there that is not being impacted. There's seeing diminished visitation that is completely pristine. And I mean, I've been to so many national parks where I have seen pots and baskets and rock art sites without a a footprint in sight. And so, obviously... It is a balance there, and I think that it's going to depend a lot on how the National Monument is written. Mm. Yeah, I guess that will be significant, right, the the, the rules that are written in. Um, you you uh, had an interesting interview uh, in Photography Magazine. You go out in the, these areas, you, you take photographs. One of your messages seems to be... Um, be very careful about giving away the directions, the coordinates. Uh, I guess you you give those only to trusted people. Keep it kind of remote. Right. I mean, these sites are vandalized often within a month if they're disclosed, previously pristine sites. Usually within a month, maybe two months, they're usually vandalized. Hmm. Now, that will keep it to, I guess, just very few people seeing it. Would, Would you say that I guess you have to earn it. You have to be willing to, to get out there and, and uh, I guess, have the skills to get out into these areas be, before you experience it. I think you have to know it. the person. Uh-huh. I think, you, I think you have to know what their intentions are when they're visiting these places. Yeah. You have... Um, reading one of the interviews, and then one of the uh, interviewers uh, put it this way, um, that you have often climbed unassisted to towering natural narrow ledges to view the sites the way the original artist did centuries uh, ago. Is it has that been one of your goals? And what uh, is that a connection to these ancient peoples? What are you what are you trying to to get into their minds? What are you trying to do there? Well, my my main objective has always been to the psychological approach. I want to really understand them on a personal level. I mean, we deal with these people as if cultures created the art and cultures made the structures, but individuals made the structures. Individuals made the art. And they all have unique thoughts, feelings, fears, and those are the things that I really want to understand better. I want to know a person, not a culture. Hmm. That, I imagine, is... A, a very special experience that to, to uh, perhaps you have encountered rock art that maybe has not been seen by anyone since it was made. I, I think a lot of art out here has not been seen, at least not within the last 20, 30, 
60 years, a lot of art is really unknown, and that's why only 8% is documented at all. I mean, the documentation standards are really not that great anyway, but the we only have 8% documented. Well, tell me about that. That must be thrilling to come across, uh, you know, at a panel or at a piece of rock art that perhaps has never, I, never been seen before. It is. I mean, we've, I've visited sites and you, you see the rock art and you're looking around the site and then there'll be a basket underneath or a figurine somewhere. And, you know, just seeing it undisturbed is unlike anything else. I guess you can uh, you maybe imagine that that person or those people, um, you know, this is a snapshot of, you know, just after they left. And it's, right. it's thousands of years. Right. And the, it, the, the interesting thing is that there's kind of this continuation that these sites were inhabited, abandoned, inhabited, abandoned, and that cycle went on. So it's just kind of like you're stuck between that cycle. Uh, tell me more about that. That's that's um, I guess that's a cycle of life and lives. That's it seems like that's thrilling to you. That that six year old boy you can just feel in that passage you read. You wanted to get out and see something real. She said, "Right, they they you sight. I mean, the interesting thing is that it's like it's almost like that." cycle never stopped. It's changed, certainly, but it's never stopped. The Where these structures have been abandoned for a few hundred years and then re-inhabited, we're coming back to these stru- structures hundreds of years later. We're not inhabiting them, obviously, but we're still looking at them through possibly the same scope as they were originally looked at every time they were revisited. Mm-hmm. And w- why is that important, do you think? I mean, you know, Obvious to you, obvious to many people, but there may be people listening who are wondering, why is that important? The cycle? Or the, 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 yeah, the, the cycle and, and, um, and for example, the, the, the ethic of leaving it in place and, and situating it in that, in that fourth dimension. Well, the, like I said, the, these are not objects, they're not relics. They are, as Paul Tosa, who contributed to the book, would say, they're living spirits. Their uh, voices left hundreds, thousands, sometimes 13,000 years later. And so when they're damaged, when they're altered, I know I can't speak for everyone here, but I know for me, when I have such a personal connection with the, the individual after seeing them and visiting them so many times, that when they're damaged, it really feels as if a family member is being killed or um, injured. You've uh, you you said in an interview with Arizona Highways, um, the one of the reasons you you went and got many different perspectives and and invited some prominent writers to participate is this message can be so political that one voice was just not enough. We I, we have seen just so many cases of destruction in the last year, and I think that. More so than just having a lot of voices, I think we need to have a lot of speaking on behalf of these places because, um, as we saw last year, that they can find a set of footprints in mud, the oldest footprints in North America, and the next week it can be bulldozed. So we, we really need a lot of people here at the table. Hmm. You say that people talk about emergence and birth a lot in rock art. And then you go on to say, then it kind of slowly goes to the death of rock art through vandalism. That's a, that's a, it's a, I guess you would say that's not a virtuous cycle. That's not a good cycle. Right. The, the, the cycle that is usually seen is that you see the, the emergence and birth in rock art. And it's, it's actually quite prevalent. And it's, there's so many incredible sites and cracks and crevices and places that are really, really emergence-type places. And usually what they say is the cycle ends when the rock art fades through erosion and falls off through time, you know, all natural processes. 
So yeah, so there is death of, of this this art, but it but it should be natural, and, and that would take many many years, right? This is right. not this acceleration we're seeing through development and, and bulldozing and debasing. Um, it's interesting that this impulse, and you say in this interview that uh, you you went through at least one public previous publisher because they wanted this to be more of a travel book and photographic guide. You didn't want that. As we said before, right, that I, I guess that you didn't want uh, the, the traffic to increase to these sites. We, yeah, we do not ever want to increase traffic to these sites because they're hard enough to manage as is. And obviously there is a clear correlation between vandalism and visitation. You see, the wealth of these places is in the collective meanings and collective values. Um, what is that collective meaning, do you think, that at least you would advocate? I think, well, I think that the, really, the power of rock art is that, unlike written language, rock art has no limitations. You can, you can communicate messages with rock art. You can... Uh, communicate ideas. You can use it as a tool, as a, uh, as a calendar. You can use it as some kind of map, but um, there, is, there is not one function for rock art. You know, you can't just, it's not just like a word, it's not just like a message. It, it can be really anything. It can be used for any purpose. Uh, what have what have you uh, tell me a little bit about your experiences out in this in this country? Maybe setting aside the the, the rock art, you, you know, you've hiked thirty thousand miles in excess of thirty thousand uh, miles, and I'm sure you know some fairly uh, rough country. Um, tell me a bit about the reward for that. What what you experience out there? It it's interesting. Hmm. <laughs> I've gone days uh, backpacking, and it's it's always interesting to just see what you come across. Um, I also deal a lot, a lot with plants, so uh, there's that along the way. There's a lot of rock art, obviously. Just see what comes up. I, I never aim for anything. I just kind of walk. You just get out there and walk. And and I would imagine from you, from that introduction, the six-year-old boy you told us about, you 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 don't like the the established trails. You want to get beyond that. I try to avoid them. Luckily, there aren't any trails around here. <laughs> <laughs> so that that helps, right? And the, the countries. The country is, you know, there's a lot of remote places. I imagine you can be somewhere remote within, you know, with the, within minutes or hours. Right. I can be. I can walk out of my door and hike if I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, this you've grown up in this country. Um, do, do you have a desire? Have you? explored other places, or, or is this a lifetime's exploration, the, the country out your back door? I've always been in the Southwest, um, but I've been in other, uh, many other states and walked wherever I can. But um, I, do, I do focus my time here in Emory County, mm-hmm. um, just what comes most natural to me. Mm-hmm. So compare and contrast that. I, I was interested to hear people that explore the country what we imagine is the green and verdant country, you know, back east uh, with the with the arid and, and barren but spectacularly beautiful country out our back doors. It's it's amazing how different it is. You know, I, as you fly over and you see these canyons and then it soon turns to mountains and then it goes into farmland for a while and then it goes into the trees. So it's, it is kind of an interesting contrast. Hmm. Do you think the land shapes you? Do you think you've been shaped by the land you've, you know, grown up in and explored so much? I think it does. I think that you you operate as you have learned your entire life, and I've spent my entire life there, so I'm sure it has. Hmm. Let's take another uh, break, then we'll come back to um, some solutions. That, or, as I said, that we'd come back to this uh, near the end of the conversation. I want to, uh, you, you have a... You, you wrote a post on your website, which, by the way, is baileyimages.com, uh, about Casey Knockett, which, uh, you know, purpose of this discussion, I think for most people, be a infamous name. <clears throat> uh, let's uh, talk about that. And, and you compare and contrast um, uh, 
her case with Tim DeChristopher's. Uh, let's talk about that when we come back. In spite of dire predictions about global warming and sea level rise, there's a building boom in South Florida. Prices are really doing well in South Florida. But when you look at what could happen with sea level rise in the next 30 years, you know, it's kind of daunting to think about buying a house. To say nothing of the flood insurance. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, what happens when a bunch of economists set up an experimental preschool to help underperforming kids? It was one of the most difficult things I think we could have tried to do. And why preschool may already be too late. It's really in those first three years of life when a huge amount of the physical brain is built. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have a few minutes left with Jonathan Bailey. His book is Rock Art, A Vision of a Vanishing Cultural Landscape. I want to focus uh, on uh, uh, potential solutions and uh, reemphasize this uh, vanishing part of that subtitle. Um, Jonathan Bailey, on, on your website, you've, uh, you've written a post here uh, comparing and contrasting the, the case of Casey Knockett uh, with Tim DeChristopher. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, I think that the post was mainly about the fact that there are so many cases of vandalism where the people are caught, especially excessively like Casey Knockett, where she's had nine cases of vandalism. And I was just contrasting the difference between the people that have destroyed these places and the person who acted in a way that was trying to preserve it. So, And the, and the, the contrast is, is that he was obviously penalized much harsher than Casey Knockett was for vandalizing nine national parks or eight or whatever it was. Yeah, I think uh, Ms. Knockett uh, got probation, right? Two years probation. Uh, and as we know, Tim DeChristopher got uh, two years in federal prison. Right. Um, so uh, where do you think it ought to be? It obviously harsher penalties for vandalism. Right. I, I don't think that I don't think the penalties are advertised enough. I don't think they're harsh enough. I don't think they are enough to scare someone away from doing it. And I think the worst of all is, of course, I don't think they're going to be caught most of the time. Hmm. What about the, uh, the, the, the what became a famous case in, in Blanding? The, the federal authorities did uh, charge several you know, citizens there. It was, became a famous case. Do you think that had an effect or has had an effect? I think it had an effect on pot hunting, but um, obviously that's a little bit different than vandalism, but mm -hmm. I do think it did lessen pot hunting in some ways. Yeah. So you think the, the, the federal government, uh, should prosecutors take a, a more active role then? I think they should take a a wider role. I think they should promote these things more because very few people know that they're even committing a crime and we need to know if someone's being charged so other people can not do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Hopefully it'll have a chilling effect if there's some high profile cases, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Um, what are, uh, have you uh, responded to this? Something else you, you wrote. This is in, uh, Indian Country Today Media Network .com, and you have a, a link to this on your website, uh, baileyimages.com. Uh, uh, the headline here, Preservation is a Civil Rights Issue. Tell me about that. I think preservation is, you know, I, I've always believed that there is a fundamental right to have your history and your culture and your heritage intact and continued. And so I think preservation is a part of that. I think that you deserve to have your history. Hmm. Um, and you're going to say that we as a people must strive for better. All the preserving the treasured vestiges and landscapes of the ancestors to Native peoples is a blatant civil rights issue. These places also overwhelmingly inhabit public lands where it is each and every U.S. citizen's right to 
an opportunity to respect, treasure, and protect the past for the very same rights of their children and grandchildren. That gets to the crux of the issue, doesn't it? Because there is disagreement. Uh, some people, um, including on this program, when we had the, that discussion on Bears Ears PLI, uh, told me, this was a minority of the view, but uh, told me, you know, they, they consider these things sacred to them. They disagree about how this, uh, you know, how we ought to go about this. Right. I think, quite frankly, I think there's very little that divides us. I think often the things that divide us are things we could very easily compromise on. I think people really want to keep us divided. I think a lot of people benefit from keeping us divided. But I don't think there is really that much that separates us. I mean, people want to access these places. People want to um, ride their ATVs. I have an ATV, too. Um, and I, I just I don't think there is that much difference, honestly. I just think that there's a lot of flame fanning here. Hmm. That's a that's a hopeful uh, viewpoint. Uh, probably goes against conventional wisdom at this point. Um, it, it, but you 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 generally think that uh, there's not that much dividing the the different. I don't. Hmm. I don't think. I mean, the people here in Emory County, you know, they're really not that different from Blanding. I, I don't live in Blanding, so I can't profess to know exactly how they feel. But I know the people in Emory County. When we actually talk, we don't really disagree about anything. Hmm. It's just a matter of how we word things, and it's often a misunderstanding as well. You know, like, a lot of people are afraid of national monuments because they kind of have this perception that it is this blank sheet that is at the president's desk where he writes in the name of the monument and all of the deadlines are set, but it's not. They're unique pieces of legislation. They're unique to the protections that is needed to keep it um, for future generations, and it depends on who's fighting for it. It depends on who wrote the thing, you know, and it just depends on a lot of factors. A national monument isn't always doesn't always mean that the roads are closed and you can't go on your ATV. It doesn't mean that always, you know, and it doesn't mean that you can't gather plants. The Bears Ears obviously allows that. Hmm. So I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding. Um what's the view do you think in general in Emory County then that's uh, against PLI in favor of Bears Ears what you, 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 I, it sounds like you feel like uh, people are close to being pretty unified on these issues I think they are I, yeah. I I haven't heard them talk at all about the Bears Ears I know they're very opposed to the PLI because um, they, they voiced their opinion already they wanted sections preserved and they they wanted effective management. They wanted to put the oil where it most likely would occur, and also where there were very little cultural resources and endangered species. And they wanted to keep areas that were important to them protected. And I and I don't think they're saying that in the PLI. Hmm. Well, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. The book is Rock Art: A Vision of a Vanishing Cultural Landscape. The author is Jonathan Bailey, and has joined us for the hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's time for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal. Cousins Charlene Duncan and Kathleen Chigup, both in their early 60s, grew up together on a Ute cattle ranch. The cousins got together at the Ute Education Center at Fort Duchesne, Utah, and talked about their childhood and how they are still good friends today. When I was a child with my cousins, we grew up in the mountains, and their growing up is different than what we went through. We didn't have television up there. We didn't have iPads. We didn't have iPhones. We didn't have anything like that. All we played with was paper dolls cut out of a catalog or read funny books. <laughs> As young children, we didn't miss very much TV and all of these electronic gadgets was replaced by experiences with our families, with the land. We had to find ways to keep ourselves occupied, but it seemed like we were always also doing family chores that we were expected to do. We lived communally before the hippies. <laughs> But we lived in extended families. My grandparents, first they had sheep, and then when my grandfather died, my grandmother exchanged the sheep for cattle. And so we were expected to travel with the cattle 
and that took all summer long. It didn't seem like it was hard work. In fact, it was kind of fun. <laughs> um, after lunch, we had a period when my grandmother put her tarp on the ground and we were expected to sit down. She taught us how to bead. So about 10 years old, we knew how to bead. Most of us have carried on that craft. So it really was a, a, a time to grow up. It was a time to explore the land, be with the land. We were close to the animals, close to the elements. But us being cousins, we were all girls. And so the girls had to pick up where normally boys would do the chores. We had to help with the bales of hay that were baled. We had to take care of the cows. We even had baby calves and baby lambs that we had to feed by bottle. And it was all fun. I mean, we enjoyed it. But we always found time to go and play house with them. I liked school so much, I was always... When we played, I was a teacher. When I finished high school, I said, I'm going to college. And I remember a high school counselor, he said, well, you know, it's very hard for women to go to college, especially Native American women. And I said, I'm going to college. So I went to school and got a teaching certificate, and I taught 30 years at the local elementary school. You know, and that's why I think today we stress our kids, our grandkids, that we want them to further their education because that's what they're going to need to take care of themselves. They're going to have families one day. You know, we don't want them to be relying on the tribe for things because, you know, one day maybe the tribe won't be here. I mean, you know, we're struggling as is. You know, I would hope my grandkids one day would be able to somewhere help the tribe in a way, be able to stand up, be able to voice their opinion, be able to talk. And I think that goes along with it also, is that you need to know who you are. Our grandfather, he stressed that, but you also need to know who you are, where you come from. I'm proud of where we come from, how we grew up. We're still friends. We travel together. We're still together. Very family-orientated. Everybody looked out for each other. Support for this segment of the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at MemoryMark.com. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, many nurses from all over the country immediately rushed down to Louisiana. They decided they would pull together a van, a medical van, and just drive down there. And they just pulled into a parking lot and set up shop. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with Good Reason, Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. 